Yeah, here he is. Right there he is. There he goes. Right there. Those are sounds recorded at the bottom of the planet just a few weeks ago that capture a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Tourists aboard Zodiac watch a huge leopard seal hunting penguins in the aquamarine waters off the frozen coast of the Antarctic Peninsula. The trip is what team leader Sam Edmonds describes as one of the smoothest and best of his seven-year career in the Antarctic tourism industry. But in a matter of days, everything would change. And what began as a two-week routine cruise would turn into a seven-week at-sea odyssey. Sam would find himself with the responsibility of managing his team and 200 passengers aboard the cruise ship the Ocean Atlantic, which would be quarantined at sea and locked out from the world. The ship was one of the last to ease out from South America to head south to the seventh continent before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down the tourism industry. You're listening to The Two Poles, a new podcast exploring our present and future with the Arctic and Antarctica. Sam Edmonds is an experienced Antarctic guide in the tourism industry. He's also a documentary photographer and former Sea Shepherd cameraman who spent time documenting anti-whaling missions in the Southern Ocean and reporting on illegal, unregulated, and unreported fishing off the Gulf of Guinea. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Australian Photographer's Journal. This is the full account of a moment in history for the Antarctic tourism industry, with Sam Edmonds. Sam, great to speak. Likewise, mate. Thanks for having me. We'll just jump straight in now to talking about the expedition. So you're on the dock, setting south for Antarctica. You've been given the all clear to leave. Let's just start there. So day one of the trip, can we just start with, were there any additional health checks, anything different from your normal voyages south to Antarctica? It's funny, you know, looking back on it, I'm tempted to say this is one of the best starts to a, a voyage that that i've ever had to the antarctic i was actually trying to tally up recently you know which sort of number trip this would be for me i, I think it's close to 30 and really the only difference from any of the voyages i've had before is that you know at the bottom of the gangway when we embarked the vessel was a, a doctor and he took our temperature our body temperature and aside from that, you know, there was very little to sort of remind us of, you know, the sort of brewing storm that was COVID-19 that sort of existed, you know, outside of our voyage. And at that stage, it was still seemed like something just at the back of our mind, something that no one was really anticipating would, would affect our voyage at all. And, and indeed, for the first few weeks, it, it didn't. You know, beautiful weather in, in Ushuaia to see us off. We sailed out the, the Beagle Channel. We had a fantastic Drake crossing, what some refer to as the, the Drake Lake, heading south. And so much so that we made great speed and, and were able to, to get an, an extra excursion just as we approached the, the South Shetland Islands. So if we can just go through the travel log, the ship diary. So we set sail March 2nd from Ushuaia. Ushuaia is very much the, the gateway town to, uh, to the Antarctic uh, Peninsula. 
quite sort of typical fashion, we set sail in the early evening of March 2nd, which typically means we can enjoy a, you know, a nice sunset on the, the Beagle Channel as, as we depart. And basically ahead of us lay, you know, not a conservative itinerary by any means, uh, it was fairly late in the season and and that sort of breeds some ramifications as to you know what's accessible and you know which sites are sort of favorable on on the peninsula at, at that time of year but also the guides on board have, have had a long season already they're not looking to you know to do the the stock standard landing sites so often they're looking to get a little more adventurous and so the the first two days, of, of any voyage to the Antarctic Peninsula uh, crossing the, the Drake Passage, which is a quite formidable body of water. It's sort of the meeting point of, of two oceans, often turbulent at, at the best of times, but often sort of very polarised in, in people's experiences. Um, you know, you either have the, the Drake Shake or the Drake Lake, as they refer to it affectionately. We were lucky we had a Drake Lake on the on the way down and basically our first point of call on the peninsula was the the south shetland islands we had an excursion at barrientos island where we did a landing to visit a, a split penguin colony following the south shetlands we headed a little further south towards trinity island a point that's quite well trodden in that there's uh, several excursion sites the most popular of which is uh, Mickelson Harbour. Remnants of the whaling days there, uh, whale bones strewn around the beach, but also these brilliant glacial faces that, that background the, the site. So sort of late season, Mickelson, uh, most of the snow was melted, but we had a pretty fantastic walk through some bergy bits and you know small icebergs strewn around the beach. And that was our, our first point south. From there, we turned north and headed the next day towards Antarctic Sound. Antarctic Sound is basically the, the body of water sort of at the northernmost point of, of the peninsula. We're hoping to access uh, Esperanza Station, where we sort of visit you know, a, a real working uh, science scientific station on the peninsula. Unfortunately, we were experiencing catabatic wind events that day, yeah, basically unable to, to land. Uh, so we took the opportunity to explore more of the, the eastern side of the peninsula, which is typically quite rare for, for most people to, to experience. And I, I think this was a, a little symptomatic of, of the time of season and, and the expedition leader looking to do something a little little out of the box. So we're very lucky we're able to get to Paulette Island, which is historically incredibly significant, but also offers sort of somewhat kind of uh, on the peninsula. And then following this visit to the Danger Islands, which is perhaps even more rare. It's, it's really only in the last few years that uh, expedition vessels have uh, started visiting the Danger Islands uh, with, with any frequency. I remember this was actually the, the first time I had landed on the Danger Islands. I've, I've Zodiac cruised there a number of times, but uh, the expedition team were all incredibly excited. We had this amazing opportunity to land on the Danger Islands, uh, do something really rare, and in turn we were rewarded with viewing some, some pretty spectacular leopard seal predation upon penguins. 
So all in all, the peninsula portion of, of the voyage was spectacular, almost unprecedented to, to say the least. It, certainly I'd say, you know, top three uh, Antarctic voyages I've, I've ever been on. And so just jumping in at that point where you were supposed to go to the research base, and would you have had contact with the scientists there? And in reflection, is that a good thing that you, you weren't able to land there? Yeah, that, that is something I've uh, reflected upon a little bit, partly because in this context, visitors to the Antarctic are often, this is their first time on an expedition vessel, and oftentimes it's their first time spending any extended amount of time at sea. And so really sort of getting used to this idea of, you know, an itinerary that's based around being on the ocean and therefore dealing with the elements sort of quite precisely is something sort of new to people and anything we plan to do on any day was sort of this prefix of saying, you know, we plan to land at Mickelson this morning or we plan to cruise at, you know, at Sierra Cove this afternoon. And, and that's always because there is inevitably a, a pretty high frequency of, of needing to alter plans because of, you know, because of the weather. So for most people on most of the the staff on board, this was a very typical cancellation. The wind outside was in the vicinity of you know, 50, 55 knots. Um, you know, to us, it was it was just unworkable conditions. But it was the first excursion that we had had during the voyage that had needed to be cancelled. So I, I had a number of guests, you know, sort of, sort of question whether it it was indeed the wind. We could tell that was certainly the reason we cancelled the excursion. As with visiting any any scientific base in the area, you're in contact with them before before coming ashore, and, and we'd been in contact with with Esperanza, and, and they had stated, you know, we, we were perfectly welcome there. But something that stood out for me, certainly in my memory, is one of our Chinese guests approaching me you know, as this was sort of unfolding and and asking if, if this was indeed because of the weather or, or if we had received some communique about, you know, the base being reticent to, to take us, you know, because of, of the COVID situation. And, you know, very, very kindly, very humbly, he, he sort of offered, you know, for, for the Chinese guests to, to stay on the ship if they were seen as some, you know, some some threat because of the, the COVID situation. And, you know, I remember sort of taking that as somewhat emblematic of just kind of reminding us of the situation that there was this, you know, this thing brewing, this situation sort of developing back in um, in the real world, you know, that, that to this point, was not affecting us at all, but but it could. You know, the rest of the itinerary was very much planned around South Georgia and, and the Falkland Islands, where there is more of a, a human population that, that we interact with typically. So it was a, a point at which I sort of, I guess, recalibrated my thinking around how we might have to deal with this sort of politically in the future. But certainly, yeah, looking back on it, it it might have been a a, a near miss um, for us. I'm, I'm yet to hear any updates of, you know, if there has been some some presence of, of COVID nineteen at, at Esperanza or at any other bases on on the peninsula. I don't think there has. Yeah, it was certainly sort of a, a reminder of of the situation. 
what was the general feeling on board your ship? Was it business as normal or was there added tensions and, and security measures that were being felt on board? I think it was just sort of something at, at the back of people's minds. It, you know, at that stage, COVID was, you know, appearing on, on other continents and, and Antarctica was the only continent on, on Earth where it, where it wasn't present yet. So in some strange way, I, I feel as though most people on board were, if anything, seeing, you know, the departure as a, a positive. It was, it was something sort of insulated for some period of time, um, you know, from this developing situation and that whatever it turned into, we would, we would deal with when, when we got to our respective homes. So for the most part, I, I think it was just something we were vaguely aware of, but not expecting it at all to to impact our, our voyage whatsoever. From the sort of managerial side and, and the leadership side, we had had, uh, you know, a conversation about it in, in the office. You know, should this voyage go ahead? What are the threats of, of COVID? How might this impact the voyage? How would we deal with it in, in various ways? You know, what's the, the worst case scenario? So in some funny way, we had considered the scenario that, that did eventually develop and therefore had some semblance of an action plan in, in, in place and, and that's virtually what what uh, eventually developed. But in terms of the, the experience for the guests, I, I think it was a, a very little concern to begin with. Up until that point on the voyage, everything seems to be going great and also I'm looking at your photo diary from the voyage as well which you took and which was published in the guardian and i can link to that in the episode notes and so what day in the trip did things change after paulette island and the danger islands we visited elephant island and namely point wild this is basically the point that we at least got some sort of semblance of, you know, the rapidly deteriorating situation back home in, in light of COVID-19. It was certainly when we started hearing more news about sort of logistical implications in South America, the number of cases in in Brazil and, and other parts of, of the South American continent were, were increasing. It was kind of going from, from the back of our mind to being something that was sort of anticipating at least having to, to kind of factor into our, our plans to, to some extent a, a little more. We got to South Georgia. We had four days of brilliant excursions there. We, you know, we managed to land and, and Zodiac cruise at, at the, the really sort of famous King Penguin sites, St. Andrews and, and Gold Harbor. You know, we were about halfway through the voyage. This is, you know, for many people, the, the real sort of highlight. But this is where we we also took the first kind of basically significant blow as a direct result of, of, of COVID. And and uh, that that came in the form of being denied entry to Gridvikin. So Gridvikin is 
the focal point of South Georgia, of any South Georgia itinerary uh, for a lot of people because Shackleton's grave is there. This kind of small community of, of scientists uh, stationed basically a, an, an outpost, a British outpost in, in South Georgia. It's maintained there because of its historical context. Uh, basically, it's an, an ex-whaling station. There's a, an enormous amount of you know dilapidated whaling infrastructure there. There's a church. There's a science base and a, there's a graveyard which has, has Shackleton's um, grave within it. So it's this incredible site historically and it's uh, a point that any expedition leader puts a, a big emphasis on uh, within a, a South Georgia itinerary. You know, typically we'd spend it in an entire day, you know, exploring this relatively small site and, and letting people kind of soak up the, the history and the significance. So we were basically delivered communication from Gritmakin saying that they had taken the official stance of not allowing any visitors to, to Gritmakin that were to arrive you know, within the tourist context and, and on a, an expedition vessel purely to to mitigate any risk of potential spread of, of COVID-19 to to the workers and, and the scientists there. The ramifications of, of one of them, you know, contracting this, this illness would be pretty dire. It's so remote and, and needing to, to get them out of there would be a, a logistical nightmare in and of itself. So this was certainly the point at which we felt, you know, the presence of COVID-19 had now reached us uh, on board. You know, we, we were kind of feeling the, the impact of it immediately. In a way, that was that was quite a, you know, quite a bad way to experience it. Gridvikin is it is very important for a lot of people, and so it was a significant blow and and, and something that I remember being quite difficult the news to, to deliver that to to the guests on board thankfully you know they, they sort of understood the situation they they took it in their stride we were still able to conduct excursions in in south georgia and and we had you know a fantastic opportunity to to make the most of, of the weather there and a great south georgia experience overall and so let's move forward then so at that time did you have any contact with any other vessels? At the end of the South Georgia portion of, of the voyage, uh, and given the, the Great Viking cancellation, that, that was certainly the, the point at which, you know, we're kind of seeing the voyage in a, a new light now, I guess. You know, this wasn't a, a typical voyage anymore. It was now something that we were conducting within the, the context of uh, what we now saw as, you know, a very serious uh, global pandemic you know and something that was touching everyone on earth including those on an, an expedition vessel in, in antarctica uh, typically you know antarctic expedition vessels especially those within the iato fleet were, were virtually in pretty much constant communication with one another this is partly due to the need to coordinate with the visiting you know, more frequently trodden sites on, on the peninsula and, and making sure that, you know, we're not sort of treading on one another's toes in, in this respect and sort of maximising experience for people and minimising impact on, on wildlife. It's also just due to safety, ships sort of keeping tabs on, on 
on the positions and if any sort of rescue, you know, emergency situation were to arise. So at this point, we're in, in fairly standard contact with, with other vessels in the area. But another way we, we, we keep tabs on vessel positioning is through either AIS or GPS positioning systems. And for us, board the Ocean Atlantic, that was mostly through through the red port uh, tracking system. So I actually, I remember that day hearing the news from Gridviken, you know, feeling that, that we're now very much sort of a, a, at the whim of, of COVID-19 getting that increasing feeling that we weren't on a on a typical voyage anymore and so i did went up to the bridge and i had a good look on on the tracking system and at the rest of the fleet uh just to sort of see what what people were doing what people were anticipating at that point there wasn't much to sort of suggest you know that the that the fleet entirely was sort of moving or behaving in, in accordance with this new sort of atmosphere. But certainly in, in the coming days, that that changed very rapidly. And so in terms of the fleet of ships that were still down there, what kind of presence at that time was still on voyages in and around the Antarctic? So at that stage, it was quite quite late in the season. You know, there were, there were a small number of operators, perhaps a, a small number of vessels within operators' uh, fleets that had uh, called it a day for the season. Some were heading north to Buenos Aires or, or Montevideo. But it was still at a, at a point of the season where especially South Georgia itineraries were, were still very, very feasible. So uh, just from memory, I, I think there were still a number of National Geographic ships uh, in the area. Yeah, some, of, some of the larger operators still had numerous vessels uh, either in South Georgia, the Falklands, or, or on the Antarctic Peninsula. I remember that day still sort of seeing it, seeing the amount of vessels still in the area. And for most people, looking at the, the tracking interface that, that day, it, it would appear as, uh, as business as usual, basically. I think it was really probably the two or three days following this. So around the probably the 18th, 19th, 20th of, of March, um, if I'm remembering correctly, was, was when the, the situation sort of uh, logistically um, in, in South America really sort of deteriorated quite precipitously. Um, and it certainly for us, this was when we experienced a, a drastic increase in, in communication from the ship's operator, the the expedition company, our office back in Sydney, um, who were able to sort of keep tabs on, on the situation more, more precisely. And certainly the sort of overwhelming chorus, the, the message from them in the coming days was that we should consider sort of trimming the, the end of the voyage uh, entirely, which would, would basically mean not visiting the Falkland Islands. Indeed, we, we, we left South Georgia and, and it was kind of business as usual. We, um, you know, the expedition leader and I visited the bridge. We spoke with the captain. We made a, a course, set a course and a, a speed for, uh, for Stanley in, in the Falkland Islands. But it was, it was pretty quick uh, after this that, that we received news from Stanley that 
we would be denied entry to the Falkland Islands entirely. And basically the decision was made quite rapidly that we would uh, alter course, set sail to to Port of Madrid, uh, which was our, our final scheduled destination for disembarkation originally. We'd sail to there. So this was the plan at, at this point. And, and then sort of what followed was that we'd find uh, a, a number of course changes uh, over the coming days as options for, for making landfall in, in South Georgia basically vanished. Around the same time, there was another ship in the vicinity, which has become a major source of news in recent weeks, the Greg Mortimer. Maybe can we just touch upon that a little bit and what kind of contact did your ship have with that vessel and what kind of impact did that have on the crew and the passengers? A vessel that would eventually, in, in some ways, become quite a big part of, of our story throughout this uh, ordeal was the Greg Mortimer. The Greg Mortimer is owned by Aurora Expeditions, an uh, Australian expedition tourism company that have uh, quite a big focus on, on the polar regions, but particularly Antarctica. You know, I, I remember the, the beginning of this season being quite ironically looking back on it now, very, very excited about seeing the the profile of this vessel on the, on the horizon. It's a, a brand new custom built vessel with an innovative design basically built for uh, Antarctic expedition cruising. It was such a, an emblem for how, you know, kind of successful and and how great the sort of expedition cruising industry had, has been lately. And in many ways, uh, Aurora have always been sort of seen as being at, at the forefront of, of this. And so it was, it was around this time when most of the, the, the situation sort of deteriorated most rapidly, um, eventually sort of saw on that interface that almost all vessels in the area had made a course for, for South America. Um, it appeared every expedition ship in, in the region was, was turning back to either Ushuaia or Puerto Madryn or, or Buenos Aires just to you know, trimming whatever remainder of, of their voyage there might be and, and, and get their guests home um, ahead of this, this brewing storm. The one exception to that was the Greg Mortimer. I remember, you know, the expedition leader and I, and I looking at the interface and every ship is, is pointing towards South America and then the Greg Mortimer was, was heading for, for the Antarctic Peninsula. It was certainly a, an anomaly at, at the time and... Um, you know, we had some sort of um, semi-jokingly conversation, uh, you know, about, did they know something we, we don't know? Close to a thousand nautical miles from, from our position, we, you know, we were curious as to their situation, but, but not at all within the respect of, of thinking, you know, that they would impact out. It wasn't until much later that we would have to consider uh, the Greg Mortimer and its uh, guests uh, a lot more as, as we basically found ourselves uh, off the coast of, of Uruguay within about 13 nautical miles of them. And really what would transpire is that their situation, in the end, perhaps they were the most most severely uh, affected uh, by, by the COVID 
nineteen um, situation within this context of, of Antarctic tourism. Can you just describe the scene about finding out the information about what was going on board the Greg Mortimer and how did that have an effect on the crew and on the passengers? Eventually, the the situation for us on the Ocean Atlantic would transpire such that we were denied entry from several ports uh, within the region just, just due to them closing under legislation that was handed down very quickly uh, in Argentina. And so basically that meant that Port of Madrid, Ushuaia and uh, Buenos Aires all became inaccessible to us. Our fallback plan in the end, and something that we had discussed uh, virtually from, from the outset of this voyage, was to head north to Montevideo, uh, Uruguay. We knew that Uruguay had rather progressive stance on, on how they were choosing to deal with this and um, and were quite publicly, you know, sort of advocating that they had this you know, this plan in, in place to, to get people out through Montevideo, which was kind of this glimmer of hope for us um, on quite literally on, on the horizon. We had arrived there. There was uh, a queue of, of ships basically waiting to tie up in, in Montevideo and, and get either guests or, or expedition team out. It was quickly becoming a, a queue of, of expedition vessels uh, off of Montevideo. The morning routine, we, we'd check the, the tracking interface and uh, I remember each day sort of just purely out of curiosity keeping tabs on on, uh, on the Greg Mortimer as they were heading south and then they turned north uh, and we could see them at one point certainly seemed like they, they made, you know, a decision to set a course for, for Montevideo. And not long after, um, I heard from the Aurora team, basically sort of stressing that, that they were now under the same circumstances as us. Uh, being an Australian company, they have a vast majority of, of Australian clientele. Uh, they were making a beeline for Montevideo and, and virtually the same plan uh, as us to come alongside there and and get their guests out uh, through through that city. Where, where their situation interfaced with us um, sort of most precisely was that we now had a plan in place to charter a, a plane that would fly all our Australian and, and Kiwi guests from Montevideo to Sydney. Uh, most of the commercial flights by this point had all but um, it evaporated uh, in, in front of our eyes. So really the only only viable option to get Australians home was via this uh, commercial flight, uh, this, this charter flight. A plan was hatched whereby uh, basically the, the Australians from the Great Mortimer and our Australians uh, would all fill up this, this charter flight together, um, you know, chartering a plane under any circumstances, uh, let alone one of, one of this size and, and capable of, uh, you know, flying across the Pacific Ocean is, is not cheap. So um, basically the, the more people we could put on board, the more it was sort of um, monetarily feasible for, for everyone under such dire circumstances. So that was certainly the plan as it stood at, at one point. Um, I remember briefing guests uh, probably for 
uh, at least three mornings in a row, um, you know, updating them on the Greg Modern. Greg Mortimer's position, uh, letting them know that this was um, very likely uh, the plan that, that we could share a, a charter charter flight with them. 48 to 72 hours after sort of conception of this plan that uh, we first heard of a, a handful of cases uh, of fever on, on board the Greg Mortimer. A plan was put into place where Aurora would fly uh, COVID-19 testing kits uh, to the vessel uh, as they came to anchor off Montevideo. And indeed, uh, uh, in the end, there were a number of of, uh, of guests that, that tested positive. So, of course, we, you know, we ended any semblance of a plan to uh, collaborate on a, on a charter flight with them. At the same time, we'd received news of you know, a, a subsidy to the, the charter flight costs uh, from the Australian government. And uh, we we're quite lucky that, that we could fly all our guests out um, rather immediately. But certainly what, you know, what would develop for the Greg Mortimer after this was um, completely, completely unforeseen. That would be 60% of all passengers and crew would go on to contract the coronavirus and, and that vessel is currently still in... Uruguay, I believe, and, and now there is an ongoing court case spin all over the news. So what happened next? And can you just expand a little bit upon your role and what you're having to deal with at this point? So in a, in a leadership sense, on board the Ocean Atlantic, and basically we were somewhat lucky in, in a way that the way this voyage uh, sort of came about and, and the way it was structured was that our company had basically chartered albatross expeditions who, who operate the, the vessel, which in a way meant this sort of doubling down of, of leadership. Um, basically, there was, there was myself on board that was uh, overseeing the, the group, uh, but we also had uh, an expedition leader who, you know, a team member of the Albatross Expeditions company. And uh, so between us, we kind of rounded out uh, any sort of uh, navigational, logistical, um, you know, planning that was necessary to, to execute a, a typical Antarctic voyage. Um, you know, very typically we'd, we'd brief guests uh, in the mornings or the evenings and sort of recap what we'd done that day, uh, oversee all programming uh, on and off the ship. Um, obviously, at the end of, of the South Georgia portion, when, when things really started to, when the situation deteriorated very drastically, basically our, our job descriptions changed very rapidly as well. We went from being, you know, voyage and expedition planners and operators to basically overseeing you know what was a, a crisis in in some respects and for the most part we weren't so i kind of had to remind myself that you know most of us on the expedition team were, were very used to this context we're used to being at sea we're used to dealing with adverse uh situations you know for a few of us this was not at all the the worst situation we'd been in on a ship, you know. Um, but for the vast majority of, of our guests on board, this was the most adverse situation that they had found themselves in their lives thus far. So managing uh, expectations, managing morale, and sort of, uh, you know, very clearly, concisely 
projecting a, a timeline that they could sort of conceive and, and that made sense to them um, was something uh, uh, of extreme importance. And I'm just looking, Sam, at your photo essay documenting what happened when you guys were docked on the ship and staff and some guests uh, in the karaoke room and trying to keep morale up and then the Australian passengers watching on as the non-Australian passengers disembark and then moving on when eventually they were allowed to disembark and everyone's wearing masks and they've got their purple gloves on and then getting to the airport and trying to keep morale up with another of the ship's crew doing Tai Chi with some of the guests and then getting onto a plane and I'm seeing that Australian $5,000 a person for the ticket home for some people. So can we talk a little bit about the, the sanitary corridor? I mean, another new term for us in 2020 that we're all kind of hearing now, but how did everyone eventually get home? Yeah, the, the sanitary corridor, this was certainly a, a new term to us on, on board the vessel. And um, as were a number of, of terms that we're all quite used to now, you know, social distancing and, and all these things that uh, are part of every everyday life were sort of, for us, you know, floating around uh, in an expedition vessel off the coast of South America. It was uh, obviously our only interaction with the outside world was through kind of digital messaging with, with our friends and family and, and through news. And so to sort of uh, reconcile us, ourselves with, with these terms, um, I mean, for the ramifications for us on the ship uh, was sort of varied, but, um, you know, the one we had to interact with, with the most was was just sanitary corridor. Um, and so the, the way that that sort of transpired for us was um, – once we had received news, we would be allowed to, to come alongside in, in Montevideo. Obviously, the, the next sort of questions that we moved to, okay, okay what, what does that look like? You know, what, what are the demands in, in terms of the government, sort of logistical bodies on, on the ground, what's required of us, um, and what are the protocols, these sorts of things. And, you know, there are, there are kind of big questions for us in terms of, how long do we have to get everyone out? You know, we've got 200 people from maybe 12 or 13 nations on board. Commercial flight options have evaporated in, in front of our eyes. So, you know, it's very difficult for us to discern how how long it's going to take to to get everyone off the ship and, and home. And, you know, what if they get to the airport and they're turned around and they have to come back? Does that jeopardize our own sort of sanitary situation and, and, and things like this. Um, and so very much what we heard from from all the authorities on board was that, yeah, that this new term of, of this, this sanitary corridor would be, would be established. Um, and, and basically what that looked like on the ground for us was that each day we would submit to the authorities uh, a list of guests we had on board who intended to disembark the following day. Uh, along with that list of names, we were to submit their nationalities, copies of their passport, uh, their flight numbers, their flight ticket details, uh, basically any details we had to, you know, cement 
in confirmation that they would be able to get out. Uh, and basically what we would discover the next day was, you know, a convoy of buses flanked by military vehicles uh, that, that appeared at, at the bottom of the gangway, uh, government officials uh, that ar- arrived in, in unmarked cars, uh, you know, with in their hand the list that we'd supplied them with, copies of the passports uh, that they would check at the bottom of the gangway and basically a, a procession of these guests to, to disembark the vessel, uh, all to be wearing masks, gloves, you know, to be supplied with additional masks and gloves that would see them through uh, their, their entire journey um, back home. Uh, their identities checked at the bottom of the gangway. Uh, basically, they embarked the, these buses. They were driven to the airport um, via uh, this, this sanitary corridor, which was basically road closures, uh, you know, green traffic lights the, the entire way, um, buses moving at considerable speed flanked. Uh, you know, by an array of uh, of military vehicles, really the quite a quite an impressive um, operation, and and ultimately something uh, um, that I, I think anyone involved has to applaud uh, Uruguayan uh, officials on on the execution of, um, and something I think ultimately is in line with. Their, uh, their incredible kind of progressive stance on on this issue and and wanting to see that that people got home uh, safely, whilst you know thinking thinking of their own populace um, and and their exposure to, to this risk. So let's just paint a picture of how you eventually left the ship and then what transpired for you getting back to Australia. So uh, upon uh, tying up at, uh, in, in Montevideo, uh, basically the plan from the outset and, and, and what transpired eventually was that um, we would spend the first few few days uh, uh, basically getting all of our non-Australian uh, gifts out, uh, via any semblance of, of commercial availability that was left. Um, quite miraculously, just, this was possible with, within, uh, I think it was three and a half days, um, we were able to get uh, all of those non-Australian uh, passengers home. Um, so it, it boiled down to a situation where for a few days we had um, almost solely, with just a, a couple of exceptions, um, almost entirely Australian and, and New Zealand uh, passengers on board. Uh, by this point, commercial flight options for them and, and all but um, disappeared uh, and we were really sort of putting all our eggs into this basket of um, a, a charter flight uh, that we'd get everyone home. Um, uh, basically, the, the charter flight was was approved, uh, an aircraft assigned, um, a date and a time confirmed, and, and it was just sort of a case of, of waiting this out. Um and uh, you know, doing all that was necessary to to prepare um, for getting uh, around about 140 people off the ship um, in a, as quick a fashion uh, as as we could. Um, again, there was quite a lot of kind of protocol for this was handed down from from the Uruguayan authorities. So basically, we were told that uh, a six 
buses would appear at, at, at the bottom of the gangway. Um, we were to split the group um, into six subgroups. Uh, they were assigned colours and numbers that would correspond with certain buses. Um, you know, everyone was to be on their designated bus with their their own baggage. Um, and, you know, all the sort of sanitary protocols uh, would remain the same with, with masks and, and gloves and, and road closures and, and all these sorts of things. So in a way, the, the disembarkation uh, process was like none I'd ever seen before in, in terms of uh, planning and, and precision and this incredibly precise, uh, almost kind of clandestine uh, operation to, to see everyone uh, leave, leave the vessel with, with expedience. So we, we left the vessel, um, and obviously this was everyone's first uh, and, and only experience of, of what this uh, sanitary corridor really really looked like. Uh, it was about a, a you know typically what would be a, an hour drive from from the port to to the airport under, under normal circumstances was now a, about a 35 minute bus ride uh, on a bus that, that never stopped. It went through every intersection because every light was was green and. Uh, you know the, these military vehicles surrounding us was were um, uh, moving with, with haste and, and with precision, and uh, you know it was it, it just kind of a, certainly an experience that was quite new to me, and I, I think that's the same for for everyone on board. We entered this uh, this building that you expect to be kind of uh, hustling and bustling with, with life, uh, you know, in line with any other airport in, in South America, and we. Uh, you know, just discovered a, a giant, uh, empty, empty void bar. Uh, the the two or three people that that checked us into the the charter flight. Um, so I, I think as 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 we moved through this process, the the situation only became uh, both more surreal and um, you know just sort of hammered home um, kind of the, the severity of the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic that. Uh, thus far, we'd been very sort of, you know, removed from in a way by being on on this vessel with with only the people around us for virtually a, a month. From here, it was uh, you know rather typical process of boarding um, a flight. We flew from Montevideo to Santiago uh, Airport, where again sort of greeted with these fairly surreal scenes of um you know an, an airport that i've been to tens of times and and is is always loud and, and full of life and, and is now uh, completely empty everything's closed there was one uh small restaurant open in in the entire uh airport we we had five hours there so in, in that window of time you know everyone we had on the flight kind of cycled through that that one restaurant and, and the guests, you know, kind of stuck to their their typical kind of mechanisms for for passing time that, that they turned to for for the last few weeks. Um, you know, some were doing tai chi in, in the airport. Um, others kind of catching up on on sleep or, or reading, and and people kind of sticking to these uh, social circles and and friendships that they'd uh, that they'd made uh, for the last last little time. But um, ultimately, it was. You know, I think for everyone, still very difficult to dissuade the um, 
the sort of anxiousness and, and the uncertainty and you know it became very evident to me on board that even on board the ship that even when this charter flight was was confirmed you know we we had a we had the contract signed we had a date we had a time we had an aircraft model that that would be flying us no one really and no one really believed that it, it was still going to happen you know we weren't sort of uh counting our chickens quite yet and until we found ourselves you know the majority of the way across the the pacific ocean on, on approach to to sydney and that feeling was certainly extended all the way up until yeah we we boarded that that final flight in santiago i remember the the sort of anxiousness uh just being still palpable you know at the gate and on that final leg, I, I think in a way that was um, almost when it, it was the most sort of surreal. We were kind of flying with with the night most of the way. It was on uh, on a dreamliner where there's a sort of the, that kind of ethereal uh, uh, lighting they they employ, and and uh, and we would uh, implement social distancing on board. So, flight operator had implemented some some quite sort of stringent protocols for limiting their their staff's exposure to any uh, potential risk to, to COVID as well. So they had basically delineated the business class section of, of the aircraft and the rest. The flight crew were to remain in there for the voyage. There was virtually no meal service. It was just the water and, uh, you know, virtually food rations sort of dropped on the seat beside you every, every few hours. I think almost everyone on board just entirely physically and emotionally exhausted. Um, it, it was, you know, by far the most kind of quiet, subdued flight uh, I, I'd ever been on. And, and most people, due to these social distancing rules, having, a, you know, three seats to themselves, so very little interaction with, with one another. Quite a sort of um, surreal experience until we landed in Sydney and, and then had the opposite experience being met by a very proactive uh, border force that, that were to see our entry into the country. By this point, it was uh, 6.30 a.m. on April 3rd that basically the, the charter flight uh, touched down in, in Sydney. So pretty close to a, a month is the point that that everyone had, had been had been away from home. Landing in, you know, sort of early hours of, of the day in, in Sydney, it was sort of a kind of a subdued uh, overcast day as as well and and i think whilst there was this uh big round of applause and uh you know sense of elation as we finally kind of touched down on on the home soil it, you know that that feeling was pretty brief you know as soon as the aircraft kind of taxied and and the shell door opened uh i think that's when uh, the sort of feeling of, of uncertainty just sort of uh, re-emerged as, as we didn't know what the protocol sort of, sort of looked like in terms of coming back into the country, you know, how 
long were we to spend in, in the airport? What sort of health testing would be, we be subject to? Um, at this point, we all knew we were spending, you know, uh, two weeks in hotel isolation in Sydney, but we didn't know where in Sydney, uh, which hotel, uh, all these sorts of question marks, which, you know, I, I think in some ways in, in, in retrospect, it's, attempting to think of them as a little frivolous, but at the time when everyone had been so subjected to such uncertainty um, for so long, uh, these sorts of question marks in, in place all just sort of pile up and, and sort of result in this, uh, this kind of anxiousness. But in the end, what we were met with was um, a fairly concise uh, procedure. We would sort of move again through, uh, through a, a big empty airport where, where everything was closed, you know, temperature check, brief verbal questionnaire with, with uh, health officials on the ground, uh, the, the standard procedure of co- collect your, your bags from, from the carousel, and then from then on kind of proceed again to another convoy of buses that, that would take us uh, to hotel rooms. Very sort of similar, I guess, uh, approach to you know, some semblance of a, of a sanitary corridor, not with uh, kind of the the bells and whistles of the of the Uruguayan version, but you know we kind of piled into these buses where we were to remain socially distanced within them. The bus drivers didn't know where they were driving; they were just to follow uh, a military. Uh, escort vehicle who who led the the procession and you know, eventually we we were brought to a, a hotel uh, delivered to a to a room and uh, that's that's where we spent the the next two weeks. And so over the next two weeks in quarantine, what did you do? How did you occupy your time? Were you in contact with friends and family? Just describe a little bit about that experience. As someone who's sort of come to this uh, Antarctic contact as as a photographer um was something that was sort of interesting for me to to navigate the entire time i guess and then particularly when i was on board the vessel being in a leadership position it got to this point where i was sort of witnessing what was unfolding around me and my my instinct as a photographer to, to witness this event is to you know sort of bear witness to it with uh, with my camera to to document it and um, and to have this this sort of record for me there was sort of a sense of you know ha- having my camera over that over my shoulder would that be seen you know as me sort of deviating from my leadership responsibilities you know taking some time out each day to, to make pictures would that be seen as you know time I could be spent on on uh, you know remedying the, the situation instead ultimately what I found was that everyone on board you know recognized that you know that I was a, a human being as well I wanted I was literally in the same boat and I wanted to be at be home as quickly and as safely as as everybody else there. Therefore, I also had my own sort of wants and needs within the situation and um, and needed also some sort of something to keep keep my mind off the situation, keep me occupied. And I think everyone sort of recognized that that my camera and, you know, and making making pictures was uh, was what helped me through. Interestingly, like 
in the hotel room in total isolation for, for two weeks and, and sort of having, you know, this camera staring back at me from, from my desk that had been, um, you know, in, in a way, my, my best sort of companion the, the last few weeks. I just felt this kind of compulsion, this urge to to pick it up again, uh, I guess partly realising the sort of the unique and interesting circumstances that, that I was still under. So I think in a hotel room, I, I turned to some, uh, you know, some kind of strange version of street photography out, out the window just to sort of keep myself uh, occupied. Um and, and give myself some some kind of creative uh, output still, um, but eventually, uh, yeah, I guess sort of again realizing the the bizarre sort of nature to to my circumstances, uh, turn turn the camera on myself to some extent. The the final uh, image in in the series um, was uh, my my girlfriend's car um, and and some flowers uh, on the roof of it at night uh when she came to um to pick me up from the hotel at uh at one minute past past midnight on on my day of uh of release and so reflecting on those four weeks um how are you processing the experience and has it kind of sunk in yet the sort of contrast between the turbulence and and the stress and you know the long days of, of the situation especially in Montevideo where it was you know it was hot and, and humid and everyone's sort of at their peak levels of uh, anxiety amidst the uncertainty and you know what was undoubtedly like a, a very tough uh, very adverse situation and then basically to be thrust into a you know, isolation in, in a hotel room where I was completely void of uh, any any responsibility, even down to I, I didn't even have to uh, cook for myself on a on a daily basis. You know, you know it was a uh, yeah, it was quite a contrast, and and what I was initially anticipating as being something that would kind of thrust me into this uh, period of of reflection on on what had just happened and you know, kind of emotionally processing and unpacking everything, you know, all this minute sort of details of of conflict that happened on board and, and, and these sorts of things. Surprisingly, and, and for whatever reason, it, that process has been virtually sort of, um, sort of non-existent. And, uh, I don't know if it's just kind of something that I just sort of put to the back of my mind and, you know, I've... I've already sort of considered or, or processed the the most sort of pertinent things, and but in the end, I, I think maybe it's just a result of having at least felt like, you know, we we did what was what was necessary. And in my opinion, you know, the team on the ship, the the ship operators, um, you know, the ship charterers, um, the expedition team, the the navigators, the captain, the you know, literally everybody involved. Um, I think did the, the due diligence perform their job the, the best they could not I- ideal circumstances for forever anyone involved and, and ultimately an experience that people will look back on with vastly mixed uh, emotions but I, I think what it what it boiled down to is that you know amidst a totally unprecedented global pandemic and being stuck on a you know floating on a ship off of south america and um in the end it was 
you know, it was almost miraculous that we managed to get everyone home in, in a time frame that we did and undoubtedly uh you know, a monetary loss for almost everyone involved. But in the end, I think that's just part and parcel of the situation. Everyone got home safely. As far as we know, you know, not one person from our, our vessel has, has had COVID-19. And um, so I, I think those kind of facts just sort of piled up for me in, in dissuading any, um, any overly sort of uh, kind of negative thoughts overall. And um Ultimately, I, I took a, a lot of a lot away from this, both professionally, personally. This has been one of the you know the steepest kind of learning curves that that I've experienced generally, but especially in the Antarctic. You know, whether now or, or perhaps some point in the future, I'll, uh, I'll I'll be I'll be grateful for for having learned from this. And so, when you were eventually let out of. Um isolation in the hotel room in Sydney at a minute past 12 that night you were allowed to leave and your girlfriend picked you up that must have been an interesting conversation do you remember do you remember what you guys said yeah Melissa picking me up at at, at one minute past midnight was you know just the the icing on the cake of how surreal this this whole situation has been really it's you know uh, she and I still have a somewhat sort of young relationship, and I think um, you know neither of us anticipated in you know the, the the first year being together that we would find ourselves you know sort of embracing at midnight outside a Sydney hotel, surrounded by military personnel, you know, sort of watching our our every move, and in so many ways. You know, she she's been through probably more than than I have uh, emotionally, and just dealing with the with the uncertainty in such a more kind of amplified manner. Sort of being being at home and and not knowing what, what was going on and if and when I'd, I'd, you know I'd, I'd get home and um, and what the situation looked like, uh, you know, for her personally amidst. This, this this pandemic um at least i was on the ship and i was privy to every shred of information that was that was available to us so i think overall yeah, us reuniting was just just uh this huge huge sigh of of relief and so now sam looking forward what does a an antarctic guide do in lockdown and what does the future hold? Is there work on the horizon? I mean, that must be the entire industry is on shutdown for the foreseeable future. Yeah, at, at this point, it's still um, it's still quite difficult to gauge. Uh, it, you know, obviously, exactly how much this is going to uh, impact the industry. I, I think whether we like it or not the whole sort of idea of of tourism after this will, will probably be sort of altered. It, certainly what I'm gauging so far is just this sort of mixed feeling of given the Ruby Princess, given the Greg Mortimer, given these sort of focal points within the news of how, you know, tourism perhaps has sort of facilitated spread of, of COVID-19 and, and um, in, you know, in, in some ways sort of been, been vilified uh, to some extent. I think that's going to hold 
you know, a, a pretty vast array and, and some pretty uh, pronounced ramifications for how we choose to conduct tourism in the future, sort of the the relevance. And, and ultimately, it's you know, sort of a conversation I've, I've had with myself about about tourism generally, but especially my, my closest sort of touching point and relevance with it is obviously uh, in, in the Antarctic. And it's something there's a constant dialogue in, in that context about the how necessary tourism is, you know, to a, a continent that's otherwise virtually uh, untouched by by human beings. And within that sort of argument, you know, there's a there's a spectrum of considerations. I mean, um, and that being one of them, whether it is truly untouched, you know, it's it's coming under the thumb of, of climate change quite heavily. So is it really untouched? And I guess for me, it, it sort of boils down to, like any other wilderness area on, on Earth, our, our want to preserve it just as a product of, of the human condition. I think, you know, putting putting big red tape around the entire continent of Antarctica and, and having it out of bounds you know, might might not be the the solution to uh, any want to to protect it. You know, I see firsthand every every day just what kind of experiencing something in that firsthand kind of tactile sense can can do to someone for the rest of their lives to, you know, within the Antarctic, the best way to, you know, kind of see Antarctic ambassadors and, and, and see people want to protect the places if, if they have this amazing opportunity to experience it firsthand. You know, the, the line I often turn to is like everyone that's had an experience of, you know, a spy hopping uh, leopard seal around a zodiac, they're, uh, they're the most adamant leopard seal conservationists that you'll find for, for the rest of their lives. It's uh, it, it's sort of this age-old thing of um, a conundrum that the conservation has sort of had to deal with. But ultimately, it's I see tourism as, if not necessary, it, it's sort of some part of, of the human condition. We all have a, a drive to experience things, to, to see things. And, you know, what else do we do with our time on, on this planet if we're not, uh, you know, experiencing and it as much as we can and, uh, you know, and celebrating this, this rock that we live on. You know, Antarctic tourism moving forward in, in the wake of this, I think it, it's going to... It's going to resume at some point. I think we can almost see an entire, you know, next season massive reduction of the vessels that appear on the peninsula. We can probably count them on on one hand. But the following season, I think we'll see a, a resumption of um, of Antarctic tourism, and hopefully, the situation we've been through will just see us come come through stronger with more awareness of these sorts of things and and ultimately you know in this context where antarctic expedition vessels are used to operating uh in accordance with with guidelines and operating responsibly and if we can you know implement responsibilities and and guidelines in terms in terms of health and and anticipating these these things in the future i think that's something we're more than capable of implementing you know to to our best ability 
I'm glad you took the conversation that way about the debate over whether Antarctic tourism is a kind of a good or bad thing, because that is one of the highlights, I suppose, of Antarctic tourism that does make quite a lot of headlines in the media. And there tends to be a lot of focus on the fact that how detrimental tourism will be for the continent. And there doesn't seem to be the other side of the argument, which is quite rightly what you said, is that when people do go down there and they have these experiences of these remote wildernesses, that they come back very changed people. Also with that in mind, that tourism is not going to stop. So it seems as though from speaking to yourself and from speaking to other people in the industry that do think that tourism will resume after this. It won't spell the end for people going down south aboard cruise ships, but there will be a big impact. Can you just describe a little bit to people who maybe don't know about the seasons what happens with the Antarctic cruise ship industry? Because you can't go down there the whole year round. So can you just talk about when you can go down and when you can't? The Antarctic tourism season virtually uh, only exists for um, the span of, uh, of about four months uh, at the most. It's really November, December, January, February and, and March is sort of this transition period uh, where, where the, the weather starts to um, to deteriorate again and, and hence uh, some sort of South Antarctic itineraries uh, to South Georgia and, and the likes. So it's a fairly con- you know, somewhat concise uh, window of every, every year that uh, people, are, uh, most people are able to, to visit um, this, this continent. And, uh, but certainly within that window, um, Every entity involved, uh, you know, gets the wheels turning as as fast as they can and, and makes the most of of the opportunity, um, you know, to to bring people to this continent and, and allow them to to experience it firsthand. And it's, you know, everyone from ship operators, expedition guides, uh, you know, DMCs and then logistic operators on the ground in in South America, airlines. Uh, hotels along the way. It's it's um, and especially because of the, the sort of nature of it. There's, there's really only you know between one and three kind of gateway cities on the uh, you can consider on Earth for um, for getting yourself to to the Antarctic. So the these sort of concentration points of of um, of logistics um, that, that get people to these points and and the sort of money they spend and and the sort of uh, economics that, that see them to, to get there along the way it's you know it's it, it's a big industry that, that we're talking about here it's uh, it's a lot of vessels and um, a lot of a lot of time and, and, and money involved and um, it's yeah far far-reaching the sort of the implications of how much this will be kind of scaled back for for certainly the the coming season i'm i'm pretty convinced that that we'll bounce back on the the following season um but certainly at least kind of anecdotally and sort of personally you know the vast majority of of um of my colleagues and, and contemporaries that that i've worked with and now looking at you know, the next 12, uh, 18 months of uh, virtually no income. I mean, luckily, luckily enough, the sort of model of being an exhibition guide is, is that you bring some some um, some level of expertise to uh, to the job from a, from a, from another realm. So, um, a number of these people have 
some semblance of, of an alternative income they, they could turn to, whether it's, uh, you know, within the, the field of science or, uh, or something like this. But, but for the most part, you know, guides spend their, their lives sort of honing their, um, their expertise and, and their skill set in, in being a, a good guide, a good Zodiac driver, a good, you know, someone that can drive in, in pack ice is, is a, uh, you know, with any level of safety is a pretty refined and, and niche skill set. Uh, and most and most people sort of bank on, you know, uh, that fact uh, when sort of carving out a, a career in, in this world. And so um, it doesn't translate to a, a lot of other other areas should, should this industry sort of uh, evaporate. Um, and I know that's, you know, a minute portion of people on earth that, that have that, that worry in front of them right now. But I think at least emblematic of, um, you know, how, how this uh, affects people and, you know, just one in, in a broad sort of array of considerations of, uh, how, how we move forward and, and how we think about the industry in, in the future. Looking at the Arctic and Antarctica and the tourism models there, how do they differ? Because I know you do work in both regions and maybe talking a little bit about sustainability of the tourism models in those places, is there a, a vast difference? Tourism in, in the Antarctic and, and the Arctic, it's, I mean, it's interesting, I guess, in a way that question often kind of builds on, you know, a question that we get from, from guests quite often on, on board is like, what's, what's the difference between, between these two areas? And, um, you know, I'm very often sort of tempted to say that, Really, the only common denominator between them is that they're both cold. Um, you know, the, the, the Arctic is a, a big, somewhat frozen ocean surrounded by continents, and, and the Antarctic is a big, uh, frozen continent surrounded by ocean. And, um, you know, there's kind of uh, conversion, evolution, and things like this that uh, make them uh, appear very similar in, in some respects, uh, kind of biologically. Um, but you know, certainly one of the, the biggest illustrations of the difference between the two is the, the presence of, of human beings. You know, there's never been any an endemic uh, humanoid uh, population in the Antarctic yet. When you go to the Arctic, um, experiencing the culture, the indigenous peoples up there is sort of uh, axiomatic to um, to the experience. Um, so I, I think. That will play a big role in, um, you know, at least marine sort of expedition cruising and, and how kind of the trajectory for both of these things um, in, in the coming years, um, partly because looking, you know, it, it's always sort of been a concern uh, what these tourist vessels can bring to the small communities of the Arctic, um, so hygienically but but in in other senses uh, as well whereas that's not so much a concern in in the antarctic but like anywhere else on earth you know the presence of human beings means politics uh and the the tourism industry is you know uh, is you know not excluded from from being being at the whim of this so it's in the arctic you know, this, this frozen ocean surrounded by continents, uh, those are all continents with um, who I think will address this in, in varying ways, even just looking at Svalbard versus Iceland versus Greenland versus Canada versus, versus Russia. You know, I, I think all, all of those uh, regions, countries will um, 
we'll take varying stances on how we move forward in, in the wake of this, uh, you know, various protocols that, that unfold in, in an attempt to, you know, mitigate any, any risk of this sort of thing in, in the future. Um, but ultimately, you know, these communities, the vast majority of them survive on, on income from, from tourism uh, as, as well. So um, there'll be sort of a, a double-edged sword um, involved there, um, which will be a, a little peculiar um, to the Arctic uh, as opposed to the Antarctic, I think. And just as we get towards the end of the call, Sam, I'd really like to talk a little bit about some of your experiences, either in the Arctic or Antarctica. And obviously you're a photographer and, and you do a lot of conservation photography work. You must have had some incredible experiences. Is there one that kind of jumps out in your mind that you can tell people about? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, it's been a, a good seven years in, in the polar regions for me now. And um I was quite lucky in a way. I guess it's for whatever reason, there's sort of a um, almost a protocol within the industry that you sort of specialize in in one, you know, the Antarctic or the Arctic, and the and the other is, you know, this sort of augmentative uh, thing to your income or, or your knowledge base. Um, for whatever reason, I, I was able to. Um, come to both of them with almost equal amounts of time uh, right off the bat. So um, I've experienced some pretty pretty vast uh, tracts of, of the Arctic as well as the Antarctic. Um, and again, so so wildly uh, wildly different. Um, just the, the experience that that you have when when approaching each of them and, and sort of the mindset and, and ultimately I think um, you know, again, sort of speaking personally and kind of anecdotally, um, because I'm from Australia, I've always felt more of a, an intrinsic sort of connection to, to the Antarctic. Um, you know, this, this species here that I can see on a daily basis that uh, are maybe on their way to or from Antarctica. It always feels like this at least somewhat kind of tenuous uh, connection um, to, to that continent. Whereas in the Arctic, I feel... Uh, like an alien there, you know, it, it, especially when interacting with um, with the indigenous peoples there, and and how sort of vastly um, different their their lifestyle, their their just way of being, and, and their culture is from any anything I've experienced um, sort of personally. Um, certainly, uh, in terms of highlights. You know the the sort of megafauna of the of the Arctic. It, uh, I've got plenty of memories there: polar bears and uh, and Svalbard reindeer and, and and things like this. Certainly, a few a few polar bear uh, anecdotes. Uh, I, I think overall, though, my probably my highlight is uh, having a pretty pretty unique opportunity to spend a lot of time uh, in a helicopter over uh, East Antarctica. Uh, a few years ago, which, uh, I mean, just just to begin with, it's such a far less trodden part of the uh, the, the continent. It's so remote and just it's the one place I've been on Earth where you really feel the furthest away from any, any semblance of, of civilization. And it's just it's so incredibly re- remote and, and rugged and inhospitable. And, uh, and for what I think within that context, you see, um, 
you know, you, you catch a glimpse of a, a leopard seal or, or something like this, something that's so animated and so easy to anthropomorphize, and you just wonder how the, you marvel at how these these creatures exist, seemingly somewhere that's so inhospitable. You know, kind of witnessing those scenes from the from the air from the helicopter had some sort of uh, unique. Uh, kind of flavor to it um, and, and then within that we had uh, quite a cool opportunity to um, to land on top of a, a big iceberg um, with, with the helicopter and sort of take a few very hesitant uh, steps out of the, the helicopter and uh, and walk around a little bit which um, yeah every time I'm uh, you know cruising by a, a tabular iceberg now I sort of remember that and, and feel very lucky. Wow what an experience that must have been mm. and Sam I, I noticed on your social media that you have an interesting nationality um, listed do you want to tell people what that is? <laughs> Yeah, I think you're referring to my um, <laughs> my, uh, my Antarctican living in living in Sydney. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, as much as that's a joke, sometimes it does feel like it's not quite the the reality, but some sort of um, uh, like a, a mindset or, or something. I guess it's having been there so many times. I every now and then I, I guess I have to remind myself that uh, to a lot of people, you know, the idea of visiting Antarctic is I mean, firstly, something they've, they've never sort of considered, uh, ever even sort of thought about. But but if they have, it just seems like it's this, um, you know, this inaccessible uh, opportunity available only to, uh, you know, kind of scientists and um, to have been somewhere a lot that vast majority of people on, on planet Earth that have not been to breeds this sort of funny sense of like identity, I, I guess. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's a joke, yeah, but also um, <laughs> I don't, there's some semblance of uh, of my identity there, there I guess, and uh, yeah, I hope I can spend much more time in the Antarctic. Well, it's clear how important the uh, the polar regions are to you, Sam, and and for anyone listening, go on and check out Sam's photography, and I'll link to that in the show notes below. But Sam, thank you for your time today. And all the best for coming weeks and lockdown. And um, thank you again. Thank you, mate. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. This episode was supported by Eco Business, Asia's leading source for sustainability news. See ecobusiness.com for daily award-winning environmental journalism. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts on Apple, Spotify, you can find us at The Two Poles. You can also support this series at patreon.com forward slash far features. We're also on social media. You can find us at far features on Instagram and Facebook and two underscore polls on Instagram. You can write to us and suggest an interview or a story subject or maybe there's a question that you've always wanted answered about the polar regions, I can find the right person to answer that for you. Finally, we're new to podcasts, so please let us know what you think at ratethispodcast.com forward slash two polls. Until next time, that's all.